right, that's enough being nice to each other. Sit down. <laughs> and I hope you're even nice to the people from Colorado. They can't help it. They're from Colorado. It's God's state. We all know that. Thanks for coming today. What an amazing summer. This has been a really fun time. Uh, it has been for me. I hope it has been for you. If you've been here all summer, if not, you're getting in on the tail end of a 12-week series on the winds of change, which is a study on the Holy Spirit. It probably did not go the way that you expected that it would. You probably thought we were going to open some other doors, but uh, Jim and I are pretty intentional about that. And we're going to end today with Romans chapter 8. Are there Bibles in those chairs? I haven't even looked. Are there some in the front? There might be some in front of you. Otherwise, you probably all have it electronically in 27 versions on your PDA or on your cell phone. But uh, if not, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 8. And uh, look at this. We're going to read through it. Then we're going to come back and pick through it. And because we're inside, I, uh, gosh, I can take an hour, hour and a half. I think that's how it's going to work. Because i got to close up the whole doctrine of the Holy Spirit. How do you do that in 30 minutes? But Romans 8.1, therefore, I'm going to throw it right at you right now. If you want to do a synopsis study of the doctrine that Paul believes in, start in Romans chapter 1. Back in about, I don't know, it's 24, something like that. He starts there with the therefore God gave them over, and he starts with sin. And if you track the therefores through Romans, it's a spectacularly straight line through the amazing doctrine of Paul. So we're going to hit here. We're going to go back to another one in a minute, but let's just read. I'm just going to read. I'm going to quit talking now. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus... The law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Man. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned the sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. He's already talked about that a bunch. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Pretty definitive statement. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to that. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, just as Jesus did, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now, if we're God's children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings aren't that worth that much. They're not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, likely the will of God there in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God, creation following the children of God into freedom. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, and not only so, but we ourselves who have the first, spirits, or first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen, that's no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we don't yet have, we wait for it patiently. And in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words can't express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit of God because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Maybe one of the mis quoted, most misquoted, misunderstood, taken out of context verses. Let's not miss this as we read through. We know now, in light of all that we just heard, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to a purpose, his purpose, his will. For those God foreknew, doesn't have anything to do with time, he just knew He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That's the outcome. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he called. The ones he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Maybe the single most ambitious verse in scripture. We've been pre-chosen. We've been called, justified, and glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? Look at all these questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding. The Spirit is interceding, and Christ Jesus is interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? That's nothing. As it is written, for your sake, 
we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Another often misunderstood and misquoted. This is not conquerors because the circumstances are great. This is in light of famine, nakedness, sword, persecution. In all of these things. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life or angels or demons or present or future or any spiritual powers, height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If that doesn't move you, you're not paying attention. <laughs> Unbelievable. N.T. Wright says this is the highest point. This is the pinnacle of the entire corpus of everything that Paul wrote. This is it. You just hit it. As he launches into doxology after theology. All right. Now let's look at a couple of things. Because i got to close up the spirit, right? We definitely read, I hope you caught it in there, the word spirit specifically shows up 17 times. It's implied a number of other times. This passage is about the behavior, the action of the Spirit of God. This is a very important passage. Let's go, let's, uh, go back here. Flip over to 5, chapter 5, while I uh, get a couple of things together here. In chapter 5, we're going to uh, see a contrast that starts. Uh, know this about the broader context. First of all, do you have any idea when the book of Romans was written? 57 AD. Do you know when Nero came to power as the emperor of Rome? 54 AD. This is right on the apex. He's writing to Christians living in Rome several years after Nero is already coming into power. And by 64, as you know, the famous fire in Rome that Nero blamed all the Christians on and then used that as a reason to literally make torches out of them in his garden, his, his uh, hillside. There's a fascinating article in this month's The Current National Geographic about Nero's Rome. It's worth looking at. Huge, the area. The area where the Colosseum is now was just a lake when Nero was there, and it was 10 times that size of a great big place where there were wild animals from all over the planet walking around loose in the park, as Nero had made sure that that happened. And he also erected a statue to himself that was as tall as the Statue of Liberty, which was quite an accomplishment at that point in time. And a big, beautiful thing of Nero standing there the God of the universe. Later, Vespasian took it and put some things on it to make it look like it was the sun god because he couldn't stand for Nero to get that much glory. But Nero is not a friend of these Christians. But they're gaining so much traction by just a few years later, there's enough of them that Nero can blame them for the fire that ravaged Rome. That's the persecution these guys are facing. We're not talking, they go to work and people talk about them bad behind their back. They go to school and a teacher says, you can't pray or read your Bible here. We're talking loss of life. That's what they're coming into. 
This is the context where they're set. This chapter follows the tension that Jim set up last week in chapter 7, which is that whole passage about the things I don't want to do, I do want to do, things I do, I don't want to do, all of that, which people have debated ever since he wrote it. Was Paul talking about himself currently? Was he talking about himself before he became a believer? Was he talking about other people? And you know what? Paul clearly left it. He could have clarified that. He left it. And he left it in a tension that we experience as Christians. He left it there. One of the other interesting things that's in here, I hope you caught it, there's a couple of verses that are very clear that the Spirit was the evidence that was the primary way to know someone was actually a follower of Christ. This is really important when we're talking about the Spirit. If there is no Spirit, there is no Christian. Did you hear that? There's no sense of, well, there's levels of... No, Paul doesn't talk about any of this. Well, yeah, you got a starting point spirit, but now you need to go get you some more. There's none of this, well, you've got to exhibit these specific gifts. In fact, Romans was written after 1 Corinthians when Paul wrote it in his scenario. Paul actually wrote Romans sitting in Corinth and wrote this letter and explains very little bit about these scenarios. In fact, it's all the way back in 12 where he finally says, here's our theology and now the practice will look like this. But he never sets up to say, if you don't have this such and such gift or this such and such thing going on, this is the evidence. What he says is, presence of the spirit is a Christian. No spirit, no Christian. Now, what does that make you do in your mind? A, do you start wondering about yourself? Do I have the Spirit of God inside of me? You should wonder that, unless you just know. B, are you wondering about the guy sitting next to you? <laughs> or the person at home, or the person back in the, or the person you work, or the person over there? Now, in reality, that's a legitimate wonder. It is. It's not about mental ascension. It has nothing to do with he's a good person. I mean, if Paul has said nothing from chapter 1 all the way through to here, he says the law of the flesh, which is our standard procedure, leads to death. There is not a place where, oh, well, but he's a nicer guy than that other guy. I cannot even tell you how many people I've had tell me that. Yeah, but my neighbor, he's just such a nice guy. He doesn't really believe or anything, but he's such a nice guy. Is there evidence of the Spirit of God in him or her? That's worth a conversation, not even so much for you to gauge as it is for you to engage them to find out what their experience is. That's a legitimate question to ask. How do you experience the Holy Spirit? There are a number of contrasts through here. This is how Paul teaches in almost all of his letters. He sets up a this against this, this against this, this against this. There's not a whole lot of gray space in here. Did you hear that? 
There's not a whole lot of place that's like, wow, it could be, it could be. Does Paul even use could in here? I never heard it. Paul is laying it out, knowing he hopes to get to see these people someday, and he may never, and he's clarifying. You can't get much clearer than this, and his contrasts help us with that. At the end, we have those rhetorical questions where Paul, there's seven of them, where Paul says, who, what, where, what in the world is going to separate us from the love of Christ? Those are very intentional as he comes to that end to say, this is the position that you have been brought into. You are an heir of God. You're an heir along with Christ. This is pretty settled, folks. Not a lot up for conversation. In fact, I've mentioned this in here before, probably a couple years ago. My brother-in-law studied law at Georgetown. And in the process, one of the classes actually takes the book of Romans, not from its spiritual standpoint, but from its legal argument standpoint. It's one of the most tightly wound, logical, rhetorical progressions from A to B to C to D that is written down in the ancient world. It is one of the best. Paul says, hey, I'm not just kind of sending you guys some nice words. I hope the weather's good and nobody sings rain down in your service so you have to deal with surf, you know, whatever. I hope it's a nice day and then, you know, puppies and rainbows. Paul is making an argument that makes sense. One of the things that you pick up in there is there's a couple of interceders for us, intercessors, who are doing that job. It never mentions us praying at all. Do you find that fascinating? Wouldn't you think if Paul was talking about like evidences of Christians and like a confidence builder and everything else, don't you think Paul would make a big deal about our prayer? He doesn't even mention it. He's like, guys, your confidence here is built on the prayers of the Holy Spirit of God and the Son who came and fulfilled the entire program of God. Can it get any better than that? And last, this is a very interesting thing to consider. Who's the, uh, who's the villain in this passage? Let me read some things to you right here again. Who's the villain? And we'll go back to chapter 5. I'll, I'll go there in a second. We who, uh, excuse me, it says this. Who is he that condemns? Oh, wait, I'm back. To, I'm too far forward. This almost flips as well as paper. <laughs> he says this. From the... The law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man. How many of you think that the law is the foil here? The law is the villain. Actually, Paul never even comes close to saying that the law is the problem. We are the problem. Sin and our sinful pre-condition is the problem. 
The law is fine. Have you ever thought about it this way? Did Jesus come and say, man, that law is just stupid. I'm not going to live any of that. Forget all the moral codes. Forget all the everything else's, even the dietary stuff. No, there are a couple of things that Jesus said, you have taken parts of this Torah and made it to be an idol, and that will not work. But Jesus never undermined. In fact, do you remember what he said? I've come to fulfill the law. The law is not the problem. We are the problem. That's where the sin, that's where the trip comes up. In fact, go back now with me to chapter 5. If you're not already there, I sent you there, I don't know, it was 20 minutes ago. <laughs> In chapter 5, he, this is what actually sets up this section that we're in right here. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's another one of those therefore hooks. As he's coming out of the sin nature that's very clear in all of us in 1, 2, and 3, and then Abraham in chapter 4 that says I, he has faith in God and God declares the faith as the mechanism that shows he is worthy of righteousness, not because he earned it on any level. Faith is the mechanism to access actually the worthiness that is only in Jesus to follow the law. Then he says we have this. Then in verse, let's skip down. We rejoice in the sufferings. We rejoice in the hope. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. See how connected this is to chapter 8. Then go over to verse 12. Therefore, as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... Death came to all men because all have sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin wasn't taken into account because there was no law to specify anything. This is the setup for this chapter 8. And then we come across, and Paul says to us, if you evaluate yourself, the Spirit is really the one who is doing the work. Sin is the villain in this passage, and the Spirit and Christ and God are the heroes. It's not us. It's not us. The Spirit does the work. Go back to chapter 8. If you're there, we can just look at a couple verses here to clarify some things right at the beginning. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sounds a lot like what he just said. The law of spirit of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin. That's the deal. In order that, verse 4, the righteous requirements of the law may be fully met who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Have you realized that Paul's basically saying we're going to live towards living the law. We won't get it done. He's talked about that a lot in chapter 7. But we're going to head that direction. If you want some evidence, if you want to know something that isn't as difficult to grab a hold of, consider lifestyle. Lifestyle. Does a person, do you, lean into the spirit, lean into the Torah, the law, the morality of God? Do you lean in there or do you lean hard and fast away? A person who has the spirit will not lean 
far, far away. That won't be their standard position that they're looking for. As we've gone through this entire journey on the Spirit, it has really been fascinating. I don't think, again, that it went the way you probably expected. We started all the way back in creation with the Spirit hovering and being a part of the creation process. We went through the, the picture of what happened with the calling of Abraham and how the Spirit was a part of that with the law that was given, the Spirit gave that law, brought these slaves out of Egypt and recalibrated them with a new system of thinking and a new identity. We go through the covenant of David, the Spirit brought that. We go through the prophecies, the Spirit spoke those prophecies, put it all together. The Spirit brings confidence and hope and a, a sense of credibility to the message of Jesus, and then the Spirit is part of the resurrection that is the final, the final hope, the final nail in the coffin of death, if you want to know the truth. The Spirit does all of this. And I know that you probably expected that we would unpack a whole bunch, a bunch of the behaviors and a, and a number of the different things. Here was the idea. If you build a proper theology to think about and believe and understand the Spirit, you can now look at the corrections, which is that's what those are, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. As you study that, you can look at those amazing first moments of Acts chapter 2, and you can understand them through the broader scope of the theology of the Holy Spirit. Paul spends way more time talking about the Spirit bringing life one last thing I do want you to pick up here, though, that he talks about that so much. Those who are of the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death. The mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Sound familiar? You hear the, the key word in there? This is not just an experience with no mind engaged in it. And in fact, Paul spends a bunch of time here, and then he says, when you skip over to the therefore in chapter 12, he says, therefore, have your minds transformed, renewed by the Spirit. It is a mind process. He does not disengage the mind to accomplish his story. Now, how do you sum, sum up the entire Holy Spirit thing? Anybody got an idea? Because I'm wide open. I'm wide open to that. I, uh, last couple of weeks ago, or a week and a half ago, I was in Moab, and I've always wanted to walk the Lathrop Trail. The Lathrop Trail is a beast. It starts up at the top in, in uh, the island in the sky area, and it's about 6,500 feet, and then you walk a mile and a half to the first rim, then you work your way around some corners, and then work all the way around one of those great big cliffs that sticks out, all the way back into this amphitheater in a back corner where a bunch of stuff has crumbled down, and they've actually built a trail down to the white rim level, which is about 4,600 feet, and then you walk through a canyon down to the actual Colorado River that's at 4,000 feet, so it's about 2,500 feet down nine and a half miles to the water, then you turn around and come back up. I've always wanted to do that trail. 
And I had some very interesting experiences on it. When I was walking at the beginning up at the top, there was like these, these uh, prairie grasses that were grown up about this high. And as I was walking along, they weren't thorny, they weren't problematic, they were just brushing against my arms. And I was like, man, this is just pleasant. It's really nice. It was pretty flat. There's not a lot of crazy business. You can really charge it and, and go hard, and you're not, gonna, you're not even breathing hard. Okay? I thought, man, that's really nice. Then you go down a layer, and it gets a lot drier at that next layer. Then you can see the bottom. You can see the end. But you have to walk literally a mile and a half out of the way to get down to where you can actually descend down those orange cliffs because of the way that's designed. You can't just, I mean, if I had a parachute, it would have been a lot faster, but I didn't. So you're walking on that, and then going down, you're in all these places where it had been all kind of eroded out and everything, and there's some sketchy spots. There were a couple of points where I thought, literally, if my foot slipped there, I'm 1,200 feet down there, Okay. I worked my way down, got down to that next level. Then you walk for a mile and a half past the greens and the chocolates and the oranges and all the different kind of layers, and you get to the white rim, which is this hard sandstone layer, and you still got a lot to go <laughs> to get to the water. It's very tempting to turn around there and bag out, but I actually had carried some extra water to leave there so I could go down and then come back up. Down inside the canyon going down, it's a jeep trail, and it's all windy, so you decide, well, I can cut across some of these corners, but of course, then you get yourself in trouble, and it's like, I should have stayed on the road, right? Get to the water. Okay, there it is. <laughs> Turn around, go back up. Some things dawned on me along that journey, though. I thought, you know, somebody made a trail here. It was a lot of work. It is, it doesn't make you do anything. The trail is very much like scripture. It is set, it's been there for a long time. Somebody took a lot of time to make sure that we have what we need to get from A to B to C to D to L, right? And I thought, that's really interesting. Then there are footprints there's maps that you can get. There's cairns. Anybody know what a cairn is? I had a cairn built down at the amphitheater. It doesn't do me any good in here. But cairns are these little stacks of rocks. And when you're walking to a place, if you see a cairn, or if you're not sure where to go, you look for the next cairn. Oh, there it is. That's where I go. And I'm trusting the direction of others. Those cairns, the maps, the footprints are like the people who have gone on before us, who have blazed the trails, those who have set the standard, who have lived before us. They're not equal to Scripture, but they have surely taught us a lot if we'll pay attention. Then I was thinking, well, what else is going on here? You know, there are thorny places. There's some places where the, where the trail has really fallen kind of apart and you're not really sure about it. It's sketchy places that, that have rinsed down in, and you're like, gosh, i got to be really careful right here because there's a lot of sand and stuff. And, you know, those are like the trials that we experience. You get thirsty, you get hungry, you get hot. It's hot in the bottom of that thing. 
I thought, isn't that interesting? Then there are occasional things that are like serpents or spiders. And to be honest with you folks, we give this, the enemy of our souls way too much credit and think he's like all those other places where it's kind of tough walking. No, that's not him at all. Every now and then, I suppose, he shows up. How many times did he tempt Jesus that we have written down? How many times did Paul mention a specific big event with the enemy? Right? It's not a every 15 seconds under every rock kind of thing. But then I thought, so what's the metaphor for the Holy Spirit? And you know what? There's a few. There's this inside leading and direction that doesn't sound like your own brain. It's intuitive, it's gentle, but it, you have to listen for the Holy Spirit. It will not come up and whap you up against the side of the head. It's also not just an endless barrage of arranging every single step that you take. That is not the way it works. The Spirit influences. It also, the Spirit brings refreshment. It brings, it's like water. It's like the cool breeze. It's like when I'm walking along after a mile and a half in just hot desert and this little tiny cloud goes over the sun. It's like, oh yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Praise Jesus. It's that kind of a sense of, oh, a break, some refreshment. And then there's courage. There's that thing that says, you know what? It is worth it to keep going, and I am going to keep going, but not just because it's a trail I want to get to the end of when here's where the metaphor breaks down. It's because the hope that we have is only hope because it's totally worth it, and we can't see the end of that trail yet, but we keep going. And the Holy Spirit wants to give you courage and hope. Every metaphor falls apart. You can find all the loops and the holes in it. But I hope as we've gone through this summer, you've been able to experience some things, hear some things, learn some things about the Holy Spirit, and then be able to say, okay, what's going on? Do I have, ask that question, do I have the Spirit? Do I have evidence of the Spirit inside of me? If you're not sure, come and talk to me, will you? Come and talk to one of our elders. Come and find Hunt Jim down. Let's go get a lunch or a breakfast and let's clarify. Because Paul wants to clarify. If you do sense the Spirit, then pay attention. Don't get caught in the loop of chapter 7. Get to the place where you're focused on who shall separate us from the love of God. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for the wonderful amazing journey that we have with the Spirit. I cannot imagine. I really don't even want to. I'm sure that I could come up with a journey that would be without the Holy Spirit. I don't want that journey. I want to hear from, to follow, to engage with your Spirit. Thank you for respecting and honoring us enough to want to live inside of us. Thank you for that. And uh, we give ourselves to you. We love you and honor you in Jesus' name.